Well, welcome to Christ Central this morning. My name is Gary Galland. I'm one of the leaders here. And uh, I just want to start with a, a, it was actually a tweet from Ree Scott this past week. You may have seen it, you may not have seen it, but uh, I'll just read it. It's self-explanatory. He tweeted, in worship, preaching, and prayer, emotionless doctrine, emotionless doctrine is as dangerous as doctrineless emotion. Emotionless doctrine is as dangerous as doctrineless emotion. The heart needs both informing and igniting. And this morning, um, our hope is that through the worship and through the word this morning, and through prayer, uh, because I do think this morning uh, we're going to make an opportunity for people to receive prayer, uh, we want to see hearts ignited, right? Uh, if you want to go to a class, uh, you can go to UNB. But uh, God wants to speak to us. He wants to ignite our hearts. He doesn't just want to inform us of a bunch of facts. Although this morning I have some facts for you, because facts uh, and good solid information that's biblical can help inform our heart to give us the security and the freedom to be able to receive that what God wants to say to us. So a couple weeks ago, Brent spoke about how the Spirit of God draws us into relationship. And so in our series on the Holy Spirit, about how salvation is the greatest work of the Holy Spirit. If you want to hear that message, I urge you to do that. The fact that We were dead in our trespasses and sins, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2. We are dead in our trespasses, but we were made alive together with Christ. We sang about that this morning. John Calhoun spoke about that this morning. That God draws us by His Spirit into a relationship. He beckons us with a grace that is very difficult to resist. I would even argue impossible. But he draws us by his spirit. And last week, Joe preached on the necessity of our continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. That we need to be empowered to live this new life. And the Holy Spirit is continually available to us. Always willing to fill us anew and give us strength so that we can be on mission together with God here on planet earth. So we've been raised with Christ in salvation, sealed or baptized in the Holy Spirit at salvation, and filled by that same Spirit in our lives so that they've been unalterably changed forever. If you're a Christian here this morning, your life has been changed forever. Nothing can change that. But there's more for us to apprehend, another truth in the Scriptures, which when understood in the head and the heart, changes everything. If the most miraculous work of the Holy Spirit is our salvation, of our being born again, the crown jewel work of the Holy Spirit is the fact that we're not only redeemed, but we're brought into a relationship, indeed a family family relationship, where we relate to our Father as adopted children. This is a game changer, folks. It changes everything. If we miss the fact that God has called us into an adopted relationship, we miss out on some of the most central themes of the Bible. 
some of the most central themes of Scripture are missed if we don't comprehend and, and really come to understand in our hearts truly what it means to be adopted into God's family. So I want to briefly take a look at and show you a central biblical theme, and that is sonship. So quickly, I'm going to go through a few things. They're going to be kind of uh, fast, but nevertheless, I need to think, lay the groundwork here. You need to understand that sonship is a biblical theme. And right at the beginning, in the beginning, sonship is the focus of creation. Take a look at Adam. He was more than just a created being. He was more than that. Adam, in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, is called a son of God in the genealogy of Jesus. He's called a son of God. And God said in Genesis, let us make man in our image. There's a, you could preach five sermons just on that one partial verse. Let us make man in our image. A Trinitarian statement in the first chapter of Scripture. He's made Adam in the image and likeness of God. In Bible times, the son was considered as one who would walk in the footsteps of his father. The implication is obvious here in Genesis that Adam was charged to do just that. Adam's also significant in Scripture as it shows, um, Adam's story shows a parallel between him and Jesus. Adam was tested in the garden in the beginning, just as Jesus was tested in the wilderness just after he was baptized. The problem is, Adam failed in his test. Sonship was lost in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned against their father and plunged all of humanity into a separated relationship. The image was shattered. Jesus, on the other hand, as a result of his obedience to the father, his mission was validated. And if you remember in the baptism story, in this one I'll quote from Matthew, there was a voice from heaven that said, Behold, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. He went into the wilderness shortly after that, led by the Spirit, and turned away the temptations of the enemy by trusting the words of his Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Sonship's the focus of creation. Sonship is also a metaphor for salvation. We see it in the book of Exodus when in bondage to Pharaoh, Israel is referred to by God as his son. Exodus chapter 4 verse 22 says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. God chooses, chooses to have a special relationship with this nation. They're promised redemption by God. In Exodus chapter 6, it says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. So they're rescued from the sin of their oppressor, and a nation is given birth through their deliverance. And a father and son relationship is established. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, 31, it says, In the wilderness you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, what, as a man carries his son. When it comes to Jesus, sonship is at the core of his message. 
John chapter 1 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Believing in Jesus, receiving him as Savior, is salvation expressed by sonship. Expressed by sonship. Paul in Galatians chapter 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God's timing. God's timing. You heard Jody this morning. God's timing. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, even gets better, you're an heir through God. In the Roman context, the status of the son's coming of age happens only when the father wills the change to occur. God has a timetable to bring you of age, to bring you into your adoption. There's a time when, in Roman culture, a boy becomes a man, when he receives his inheritance, when he's declared as the one who is going to get everything that his father has. And Paul is referring to that in Romans. With sonship, there's also a moral obligation. In the Old Testament world of Israel, fathers and sons lived by social expectations. Sons were expected to follow in their father's footsteps. Sons got their sense of identity from their dads. They sought to honor them with their lives and keeping the family name. Fathers demonstrated gracious authority. They set an example and they educated their sons. Sons, on the other hand, in a good relationship were obedient, they imitated, and they honored their dads and the family name. This pattern was the same for Israel as a nation. So you take what was in the family and you extend that to the nation. They were set apart for their father. Deuteronomy 14.2 says, The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why did God choose Israel? Why? Were they any better than any other nation? No. Why did he do it? Why did he choose you? Why did he choose them? He chose them because he did. You find any other reason, let me know. God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty, he chose Israel. He chose them. Many promises. In the New Testament, the same expectation for us as sons and daughters of the Father. We're to live out our faith in the now and the not yet. The now is when we have lots of troubles, right? The not yet is when we will see him face to face. First Thessalonians 5, 5 says, For you're all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So we have a responsibility to live upright and holy lives that honors the family name. Sonship's also the goal of restoration. Romans 8, 18 says this, and on it says, For I consider that the sufferings... Listen to what Jody said this morning. Many of you have gone through some difficulties. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Someday, 
This will all change. The living in the not yet of the kingdom has a purpose to restore us to the image of Jesus. We're being prepared, folks. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You guys, us, me, tremendous, the body of Christ. This should tell us that there's no such thing as a health and wealth gospel. There's no such thing as a prosperity gospel. There's no such thing as prosperity teaching as we've known it in our culture. It perverts the gospel of suffering. There's a suffering, there's a suffering, uh, there's, a, there's a teaching and suffering that we miss in the West because we have our creature comforts. But just go to Africa. When Barb and I were in Zambia last summer, Yes, there's a large segment of African Christian population that's embracing a prosperity message, but you know what? They have found over this past 25 or 30 years the falseness of it because it doesn't add up. The, pyramids, the pyramid scheme of the prosperity gospel doesn't make sense when you realize all of a sudden, I'm still going through difficulties. Half my family has been wiped out because of AIDS. Half my family is dying because of other diseases like malaria, etc., etc., etc. Children being children and little boys being sold into prostitution. Where is your prosperity gospel? But Jesus, but Jesus, He rescues us. So, if sonship is so much the core of the biblical theme, it raises a few issues, then doesn't it? Because God is more than the theological idea or a set of doctrines. The God of Scripture is above all else intensely, relentlessly relational. He's primarily reflected in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, a divine family, a community, in perfect relationship and synergy, always relating, always preferring, always loving. This is who God is. And it's a mystery, folks. You'll never comprehend it fully. You'll never understand it fully. If you try to understand it fully, it'll drive you mad. But we must accept the fact that there's mysteries in the faith. You juxtapose the beautiful communal relationship, perfect harmony of the Trinity. You juxtapose that with our fractured society and you realize just how much we need Jesus. We need to be brought into this sonship, daughterhood relationship with the Father. We're reduced to a set of numbers in our society. We're depersonalized to email addresses and social network IDs. They think, we think we're so well-connected. In reality, we're just tuned into our own needs and wants at the expense of community. Moreover, family is fractured and dysfunctional. In my job, and I'm a school principal, I see this every day. I've never seen the amount and the incident of frequency of of uh, teenage anxiety, serious, we're talking serious, life-threatening anxiety issues that are just rampant. This past week, you may have heard in New Brunswick, the number three cause of death in New Brunswick is now what? Suicide. Think about that, folks. We live in a culture that is fragmented, broken, and in need. It's always been fragmented, broken, and in need, But the times are getting darker. 
We as God's children are brought into this Trinitarian family relationship. We're called to worship Jesus. We're called to worship God. But let's let's not just stop at worshiping the book. It's not Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one that we must understand. Helps us to appropriate into our lives the appreciation for being adopted children. As an extension of all of this, if we're in relationship with our father, if he's our dad, it stands to reason we're on a relationship journey with each other in this family right here. Indeed, the family around the world, church family around the world, but in this local church, we're on relationship with each other. Guess what? We belong to each other. We really do. This is is where it goes beyond metaphor. We really do belong to each other. Second point, or the second section of this this morning. So, sonship is a biblical theme. Secondly, Jesus is the Son of God. Why is this important? In the New Testament, there are 150 references to Jesus as the Son. Therefore, I think it's important to have an understanding of Jesus' special relationship to the Father. If you want to know how to be a son, you want to look to Jesus. He's the Son, right? First off, Jesus at Jesus' birth in Luke, we see Mary, her firstborn son. He's called her firstborn son. It's a parallel to the birth of Israel as a nation. So it's amazing when you look at the symmetry in the scriptures, right? You see things always going back, always going back. Jesus is the fulfillment of that which failed. He's special. He's going to be the leader of a new family, a new Israel. He's also God's son. Speaking of Mary's conception in Luke 1.35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus is conceived, conceived as a result of the creative process of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit and sonship, they go hand in hand. Paul understood this in the epistles as well. In Galatians 4, 6, he says, And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son, Jesus, into our hearts, thereby we cry, Abba, Father. Jesus was called out of Egypt. Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt to escape Herod in order to fulfill the Scriptures where it says in Matthew 2, Out of Egypt I called my son. He's making reference there to Israel out of Egypt in the Old Testament. Now we have the better, the better deliverer. He's the true son that Israel never proved to be, delivering mankind from bondage. So Jesus' birth. Secondly, Jesus' baptism. He's the beloved son. The climax of the story isn't the baptism, but the declaration of Jesus' identification, who he is. The same spirit that conceived Jesus is the same spirit who anoints Jesus for his mission. The Father affirms the Son. At his temptation in the wilderness, just after that, Jesus shows himself to be the obedient Son in Matthew chapter 4. There's a parallel here to Egypt, as I said earlier. Led by the Spirit into the wilderness, dry, desolate place, tempted, yet victorious, satisfying his immediate needs. He was tempted that, you know, Satan was going to tempt him to satisfy his immediate needs. 
He tempted him with power and authority. He tempted him with worship. But his obedience came from his deep identification and security he has in the Son. And he basically, he told Satan where to go based on who he was and who he knew he was. Fourthly, Jesus is the Son that must suffer on the cross. He went to the cross and was mocked and taunted three times. I was was amazed. He was mocked and taunted three times. And it basically makes up all of society who mocked him. It was the bystanders, the religious ones, the Pharisees, and even the thieves, like the criminals, the criminal element. Everybody, there wasn't anybody left to mock him. Three times he was, but three times he's also referred to as the son. Interestingly, Jesus is confirmed and affirmed as the son by a Roman soldier. And even this is prophetic. Who upon seeing Jesus die affirmed his sonship. An outsider. Truly this must be the son of God, he said. I always think of John Wayne. In that movie, I forget the name of the movie, it was... Bible movie from early 60s. And it was the only line John Wayne had in the movie, I think. You know, truly this was the Son of God. Like, <laughs> I'll never forget it. Kind of ruins it for me, actually. John Wayne. He's the Son of God. And prophetically, why? It's because he was Roman, he was an outsider. And it speaks to the fact it was the outsiders first that accepted Jesus for who he really was. The Gentiles received Jesus as Savior first. Paul in Romans 1.4 later refers later to the resurrection of Jesus. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And we can go on and on and on. To sum up, he's the only Son who is God. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You'll notice this morning, I just feel, I, when I was preparing this, I was like, I just, we just have to have Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. It says in John 1.18, that Jesus is the explanation of the Father. The original Greek word there says that Jesus is the exegesis or the explanation of the Father. Isn't that amazing? God made him known. The original Greek is Jesus is the exegesis or the fancy word explanation of the the Father. Like Father, like Son, as we've seen before, Jesus as the Son upholds all that the Father is doing. John 5.17 says, Jesus answered them, My Father's working until now, but has pa- or my father has, sorry, missed my place. My father is working until now, and I am working. So Jesus saw what the father is doing, and he was going to do it. He's always obedient and subordinate to the father. The father takes the lead, and Jesus does what his father does. Jesus, like the father, gives life. Who else gives life? Jesus. We heard that this morning, over and over again, through everything that we shared, through the songs we sang. Jesus is the giver of life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus is the conduit for others to become members of God's family and our example. Because of Jesus, 
We're sent as sons and daughters of the Father, empowered by the Spirit. So we're adopted sons and daughters empowered by the Spirit. So third section here, we're talking now about the fact that we are adopted as God's sons and daughters. We've seen Jesus as the Son. We've seen sonship as a biblical theme. Now what about us? So we're justified and adopted. Not only are we redeemed and experience salvation, but we're adopted into the warmth and security of God's family. His heavenly family, yes, I would even go so far as to say we're kind of enveloped in this Trinitarian relationship with God. But we're also in this family together. Paul's theology does not end in the courtroom, but in the home of the Father. Aren't you glad it's not in the courtroom? We've been declared innocent. We've been, you know, the guilt has been taken away. We're free. We're forgiven. Great. That's wonderful, isn't it? Redemption's wonderful. But isn't it better to be brought home? And given a home? Packer calls, J.I. Packer, who I I really like his stuff, some of you have read Packer, calls adoption, get this, the highest privilege that the gospel offers. The highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher than justification, owing to the riches in relationship with God, it offers. Not saying it's better, saying it's higher. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying justification isn't important. But Packer says that he sees adoption as the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Adoption has to, be, has to do with being transferred. If you're a Christian this morning, you've been transferred from one household to another and everything that goes with it. So you were a part of the kingdom of darkness and all that goes with it. There's an inheritance, you know, with the kingdom of darkness. And it's not good. I don't have time to go into all the details, but I think you get the picture. When I say kingdom of darkness, inheritance, you're not exactly thinking this is going to be great. I'm going to go to hell with all my friends. We're going to have a good old time. Eh, it doesn't really work that way. Adoption, secondly, is a Trinitarian action for us. The Father initiates. This defies comprehension that we can be called children of the creator of the universe. And we can say, Abba, Father. Isn't it amazing? It all has to do with Him and His grace. We belong to Him. Nothing can change that. Nothing can change that. If you've been called into His family and you're an adopted son or daughter, nothing can change that. Some of you may have children that have gone wayward. Uh, they've gone wayward on you. Are they still your kids? Story's not over, folks. God is sovereign. We belong to Him. Nothing can change it. We belong. We're welcomed. We're wanted. We're in a caring family. The Son acts in unison with the Father as well. So the Father initiates the relationship. The Son acts in unison with Him. As we've heard, He's the superior Son succeeding where Adam and Israel failed. Romans 8.3 says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. We're redeemed so that in Galatians 4.5 it says, we might receive what? Adoption as sons. We're redeemed for that. It's all tied to Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, it says, In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Talk about mystery. 
Thirdly, so the father's involved, the son's involved, the spirit confirms that we're adopted. Romans 8, 14, 16 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You see the Egypt references here? But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. We can choose to live by the flesh or by the Spirit. He directs and guides us. He bears witness with our spirit. He even intercedes for us. Romans chapter 8. The Spirit's role is vital. He's an empowering presence, but He's also very personal. He strikes a chord with our human spirit that we've come home. Have you had that sense from His Spirit that you've come home? Have you registered that? Has it caused your pulse to race? Has it given you cause to get up in the morning that, that He's brought you home? If you're a Christian here this morning, that should rejuvenate you. Just the thought of that should give you purpose because you are God's child. You are God's son. You're God's daughter. should make your heart race. An adoption is accompanied by a new inheritance. As I mentioned briefly earlier, we're living in that tender balance of the now and the not yet. Romans 8, 17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And Galatians 4, 7, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. Sonship is a prerequisite for being an heir. You need to be a son before you're an heir. You're not an heir first, then a son. You're a son, then you're an heir. Or daughter. We're adopted with the power over sin through the Spirit. Romans 8, 13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, guess what? You will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's very simple, isn't it? It's, it's, when, you, when you hear the Scriptures, the Scriptures are very, if you want to live, this is what you do. We cannot go back to our old ways, to Egypt when the, when the chips are down. You know, it's like, oh, I wish I could go back to Egypt. Have you ever tried to go back to Egypt, theoretically? Figuratively speaking, have you tried to go back to Egypt? It's no fun doesn't work the holy spirit helps us as we're obedient we have the responsibility to act righteously to make right decisions and yet what happens then we make that decision and his holy spirit because he lives with us he's resident with you we're called a temple he gives us the power to make the decision firm he allows us to walk it out he gives us the strength to do it if you can resist temptation it's due to his spirit it's not due to you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps the spirit gives us the desire to please our father in continually putting to death the misdeeds of the flesh we need to choose wisely folks he's the agent in our obedience and he's powerfully and supernaturally available to us he brings and gives us a new attitude towards sin do you hate sin? Do you love Jesus? I would start first with loving Jesus. If you want to focus on sin, it's going to be pretty tough. So do you love Jesus? That would be like, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. And if you, even if you don't feel that, if you're a Christian this morning, you start there. You start where the bar is the lowest. Jesus, I don't feel anything. But I want to tell you, you know what? This is what your word says. And I, I just want to tell you, I love you. 
I need you. We sang that last song, Who Do You Say You Are? You're the living God. Like, I find myself praying prayers like, all, like that all the time. It's like, I get into that place, you know, where it's like, oh, things are really going rough. And, you know, you, you, some of you know my story. You know that in the past, long time ago, thank God, uh, but a long time ago, I had some real serious challenges with depression. So, you know what? Sometimes I got to go, <laughs> think Marshawn Lynch goes into beast mode. Sometimes I got to, Gary's got to go into beast mode. Seriously. I got to just bunker down, hunker down, and I got to say, God, you're the living God. I need you. I need you. I'm desperate. If you're relentless for me, then I'm relentless for you. Even if I don't feel anything, it doesn't matter. I'm telling you right now, God, I am relentless for you. We're adopted with a future hope. Jody referred to it this morning so beautifully. The reality is we're adopted into a new relationship. We have a future hope that we'll experience the not yet. And we'll see the full realization of being united with our Father. Right now we're groaning, right? We don't see Him as He is. See through a glass dimly. We want to see Him as He is. And someday we'll see it. But there's suffering now. And it's hard sometimes. Yeah, there's times of joy. And like Jody says, you know what? Right now things are great. Hallelujah. That's amazing that they are. God fills us even in the times when it isn't so great. So what are the implications of adoption? And very quickly, and intentionally, I'm going to leave you hanging with a few things this morning. Because all this stuff is good to know. If Jesus said that he wouldn't leave us as orphans, and that's what he said, he would send his spirit, it must impact us. But sometimes I wonder, why is it that I feel more like an orphan than I do a son? Or why is it that I see my life seems more orphan-like than it does son-like? It has to do with this up here. It has to do with the mind. The mind is the battlefield. If you have a heart of an orphan or a heart of sonship, there are litmus tests that can say, okay, maybe I need to change my way of thinking about something. If, you see, if your image of God is that you see God as a master... That's orphan thinking. In fact, you would see him as a taskmaster. A son or a daughter sees him as a loving father. If we would identify ourselves as being independent or self-reliant, that whole question of dependency, that's orphan thinking. We need to see the interdependence that is available to us in the Spirit of God. Where's our security? Is our security in rest and peace, son? Or is our security in our insecurity and our lack of peace? What about our need for approval? Okay, now we're touching on... If we're striving for the praise and approval and acceptance of others, that's orphan thinking. See, we need to start lining up with the Word of God where... We're totally accepted in God's love. Did you know that if you're a Christian this morning, you're totally accepted in God's love and that you're justified by grace? 
You don't have to strive for anybody's approval. What about your motive for service? In other words, why you do certain things. Orphan thinking says, I have a need for personal achievement, trying to impress God and others, or I have no motivation to serve at all. Apathy. But as a son, service is motivated by a deep gratitude for being unconditionally loved by God. So I, wanna, I just want to do this. As I always say, I know you think it's a broken record, but I'm going to say it anyway. You get to serve. You do. You get to worship. You get to serve. You get to commune with God. You don't have to. You get to. What's your motive for purity? Because I have to be holy to get God's favor? That leads to shame and guilt because if you put the focus on the problem, you're going to end up falling down all over the place. If you want to be holy, though, when you understand your securities in God, you want to, you want to preserve this. You want to give what you are to God, to Him, to His Father. Where's your source of comfort lie? Do you seek it in counterfeit affections, addictions, compulsions, escapism, hyper-religious activity? Or do you seek times of quietness and solitude just to rest in His presence? This morning during worship, you know, I said, my legs are tired. I'm just going to sit down. I'm just going to worship God. And I didn't even have to sing any words. I don't even need words. I'm not perfect, folks. I have my times. Trust me. I could go on. I could go on. So what are the blockages to intimacy? I just want to ask you these questions. I want to ask you these questions. We're going to ask the band to come up very shortly. After communion's finished... If you would like prayer, we make people available. I'd love to pray for some people this morning. So what are some of the blockages to intimacy and understanding God as our Father? Okay? Maybe we have forgiveness issues. If you feel distant from the Father or you feel like an orphan, just maybe, just maybe, you have some issues of forgiveness that need to be worked out. Maybe there have been some things done to you. And maybe those things were done to you and that person's not even living anymore. How do I escape this? Maybe there have been some things done to you and the people are even here in the room. Or maybe we've done some things to others and God is showing us this is probably one of the reasons why intimacy has been affected between me and you because we need to sort out the horizontal first. Maybe we have authority issues and in our culture, tell you what, Authority is a big one. I see it every day. I told you the story of a little guy coming up to me with his mother. You're not the boss of me. And his mother says, oh, yes, he is. Of which I immediately replied, yeah, I am. Really, the big deal? I am the boss of you. Let me show you how. But authority issues, we have them, right? What's your filter? Why do you have an authority issue? Do you really, does it really press your buttons when you're told what to do at work, at school, in your relationships? You feel that, you know, your buttons are being pressed? You have to gauge your reactions. If you, my, Barb's really great at this, and the thing I go by is, if you have a really strong 
reaction to something, like a, almost, I won't say, not physically violent, but a violent reaction, like over-the-top reaction to something, you've got to ask yourself, do I have an authority problem here? Is there an issue? Maybe you need to forgive those who've been in authority over you and they haven't done anything wrong. Maybe it's just you have an authority issue. See, this is all coming from our old life, right? There's some things we have to filter. We have to put God in his proper perspective, in his proper place. We filter everything through our Father instead of the other way around. Our experience, if our experience is the filter and God is here, guess what? God's going to be a taskmaster. God's going to be awful. God's going to be evil authority. If it's this way and we have things in proper perspective, then God is the filter. Do you want God to be the filter? I hope the answer is yes, because you know what? When God's the filter, everything is put into proper alignment. And we have the ability then to be free. Maybe we need to renounce some ungodly beliefs. And maybe some of the things I just talked about, about orphan thinking, maybe you need to renounce those. God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. God doesn't know me. The Bible says otherwise. The Scriptures, the Word of the Father, you can take His Word to the bank, folks. He says differently. Maybe you need to renounce those things. Maybe you say, you know what? I've been saying these things. I've been thinking these things. I can't get my way around them. You say, What's the solution? I renounce them. It's not trying to work through it. It's renouncing. I renounce that. I'm going to not think that way anymore. I want to put that one away. It'll end with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5 says this. For the weapons of our warfare... Now remember, we're talking about being filled with the Spirit. We're talking about being adopted as sons and daughters... The Spirit bears witness with us that we are sons and daughters of God. So as sons and daughters of God, you've got to know that the weapons you fight with aren't of the flesh. Okay? It's not of the flesh. It's not with your words. It's not with your fists or your feet. It's not with your manipulation. It's with divine power through the Holy Spirit to what? Destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments. Look at this. We destroy arguments. What are the things that the lies are arguments, right? Oh, God doesn't love you. You'll never be good enough. Look at what you did. Don't you remember this? We destroy those things and every lofty opinion raised against what? The knowledge of God. What we know to be true. And we take what? Every thought captive to obey Christ. I'm not going to receive that. I'm going to take that. I'm renouncing that. I'm choosing to believe this. I mean, folks, it's as simple as that. But we're in the, when you're in the midst of it, you've got to be reminded of the simplicity of it. Because what the enemy will try to do is he'll try to make it complex. And what we do when we do, do these things is we sow into the inheritance that God has. So we're going to celebrate communion this morning. Why don't we stand? I just want to pray before we celebrate communion. And I do believe that the Holy Spirit is speaking this morning. And it's got nothing to do with me. In fact, take me out of the equation. I just feel like the Holy Spirit this morning 
is speaking truth to people's lives. And he's wanting to set some things right. And he's wanting to give to you a sense of purpose as a son and daughter. He wants to let you know that it doesn't have to be the way it's been. So uh, allow me please to pray for you. Joel's, let's just stay with things here. Joel's going to lead us in communion. John's going to do a song. And after we receive communion, and you know what? I'm not in a big show. After we receive communion, if you've received communion and you've, you know, you've said, okay, God, I love you. I count myself as one of your own. And you receive the emblems of the body and blood of Christ. If you want prayer, we're just going to ask you to come forward. We're just going to ask you to come forward. You know what? Again, we're in relationship with the Father and with each other. We need each other, folks. You need us. I need you. You need me. Let's lift up our hands if you're comfortable with that, even if you're not. You know what? This, this is a historically biblical way to say, God, you're the boss. I'm not. I worship you. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your word. I thank you for how you love me. Just tell them, thank you for how much you love me. And there are some of you in this room right now that have a hard time even vocalizing that sentence. If you feel that you can't say, God, I love the fact that you love me. If you can't say that, I'd love to pray for you. But you know what? You've got to push through it. I can't do it for you. So, Father, you love me. Let's personalize that prayer. You pray with me. You love me. You love me the way I am, but you don't love me the way I am and not leave me here. You want to move me on. You want me to align with your word. Would you come now as we celebrate what Jesus has done? Would you come, Holy Spirit, and give us courage to move, give us courage to act, give us courage to live for you, give us courage this morning to step out with our brothers and sisters and receive from one another this morning in Jesus' name.